One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. I'm Stephen Murin. Our guest this week is Lev Abramovich, a Canadian immigration lawyer in Toronto whose firm was counsel for the applicant in Chen v. Canada, Citizenship and Immigration. 2023 FC 885 is the neutral citation. Chen was the first reported Federal Court of Canada decision involving a mandamus application and study permit. Mandamus applications, for those who don't know, are applications to the Federal Court of Canada to compel IRCC to conclude the processing of a delayed application. In Chen, Madam Justice Allen ruled that Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada's delay was unreasonable, or at least unexplained, but that the mandamus application had to fail because the applicant, Mr. Chen, a potential PhD student living in China, did not demonstrate that they were experiencing significant prejudice. In addition to Chen, Lev, Diana, and I discussed security clearance delays for applicants from Iran and China, which appear to be a growing issue and causing significant delays in processing. Lev can be reached at info at atimmigrationlaw.com, info at atimmigrationlaw.com. As always, if you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. One of the topics that uh, that that has raised has been raised for discussion today is um, security related delays, and I think I don't know about the two of you, but I have seen some very dramatic trends in security related delays um, that suggest to me that there has been operational decisions made with respect to processing of applications from China, and uh, and so. In that respect, you know, I don't believe this policy has been um, decided in uh, with full transparency. I don't think that there was clarity made as to like, well, look, we're going to um, add specific security measures with respect to all Chinese applicants. But I'm dealing with these mostly from the perspective of applicants who are coming to Canada as caregivers. And mm. the kind of extra layers of scrutiny that they're getting, people who have maybe worked as hospital staff that are getting extra questionnaires 
with respect to them being government employees, um, you know, and adding, you know, months and months and extra procedural fairness letters and all this kind of stuff that I'm just finding it um, almost at the level of ludicrous because, yeah, you know, um, I understand that security clearance is something that's necessary for the immigration process, but it really just feels a bit like generalized pushback <laughs> that's just going to add time when there's really nothing further that's going to go into those government uh information forms that isn't really there on a schedule a form because asking what level of government and what how many steps between you and the minister when somebody has said on their schedule a form that they are a nurse or that they're working as you know a supervisor of medical personnel um you know these sorts of things so um just when you're talking about um what languages is sort of just brought to mind the kind Mm -hmm. of there are regional specific issues that are very political decisions that are impacting on immigration processing that, um, you know, I feel like if I were going into entering into the the immigration portfolio, um, they'd be things that I would want to turn my mind to as a matter of priority and just figure out, are these strategic decisions that we're making? Are they the right strategic decisions? Anyways, I just kind of wanted to to send those over uh, to, 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 to open that part up for discussion. If you had to guess, cause I think it's clear that uh, it's happening frequently enough with Chinese nationals that it can't just be individual officer decision and that there is some sort of a directive or operational guidance. Do you have an idea as if, if you had to speculate what the policy is, since it's not publicized, what do you think is going on or what do you think the directive is? Well, I, I think that we're sort of in, in part following the sort of de-globalization trend and what I think Trump kind of started with China and then ultimately Biden has continued in some way. And I think there's um, a lack of transparency with respect to what our policy is. You may disagree with the directive that uh, the Trump administration issued, but at least it, it was transparent. It was on the record. So everybody knew. Whereas it seems to me what we're doing is we are uh, still probably working out a strategy, but without any sort of notice to the applicants. So whether you're yeah. a nurse or whether you're a student, I think that there should be some sort of communication letting you know that you may be stuck. It may be take a year or two or however many for you to come here. And that in some way, we may actually not want you here uh, on account of security concerns and so on. So I'd be interested if any of your, I guess, 80 requests and so on have brought anything like that up. I was speaking to a Globe, mail reporter who suggested that we, something like that may be in the works, but I don't see uh, the Trudeau government announcing it and still making it public, which kind of frustrates me. Do you want to elaborate on what the Trump explicit policy was? Well, I think the explicit policy was essentially banning graduates from certain universities, which are, I guess, tied to the security and the government apparatus in China from studying in the U.S. on account of basically national interests, security concerns, etc. So that's, I think, is a it's it was, I think, by way of an executive order. It's P1003. And uh, I think I have this right. Just yeah. And um, it was essentially a proclamation that uh, denied the right to certain people who graduated from certain schools from studying in the U.S. or being issued specific mm-hmm. types of visas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that we've seen this type of executive order coming out of the United States for a number of years, like um 
including the executive orders that affected people from Iran traveling, um, you know, that, that came previously during, um, you know, during the, the pandemic as well. And so, but again, I, I agree with what you're saying, Lev, is that um, there is a real lack of transparency. I mean, I know that you had reached out to us to try and discuss um, the decision, the recent decision that came down on a mandamus application in, in the Chen decision that was, um, that sort of added criteria that we're not accustomed to seeing on mandamus applications. And again, um, it, it does lead to this sentiment among um, some practitioners and some litigators about, you know, we do feel like a shifting landscape. Um, and so it's not, I, I just feel as, as a practitioner, maybe I'll just sort of speak about this personally. I feel personally that when I'm dealing with applications and I'm trying to advise people on the prospects of success, it's not just through the normal lens of like, look, here's whether or not you have the potential of being found that you're going to overstay in Canada because, you know, you're not going to return to your country of citizenship or trying to assess whether your mandamus application is going to be successful because of the length of time that it, uh, the, the delay um, has occurred. But also you're starting to do a lot more thinking just about country of origin and how that fits in. Because as you um, referenced, Steve, when you do see ATIP findings, like the vast swaths that are being redacted, where um, there's nothing that is evident at all from the person's record to show that there's any history of any kind of government involvement, any like any involvement in any kind of acts that would normally cause there to be big redactions, no military involvement, no no criminality, nothing like that. Um, and then sometimes you get the full record through um, the rule nine reasons when you're litigating the case. And again, it's all pretty mundane stuff and um, and it doesn't end up being an issue that leads to an admissibility finding. It does start making you feel like there are decisions being made that are like country specific about security concerns that just are not um they're just it's new it's a new way of looking at things where just because of one's Chinese citizenship that there's just a different lens being looked at them in terms of what those risks might be well there's also real unpredictability with it like Iran I think goes through a similar for sure security assessment process but there's some predictability because you can go to like the Canadian government website which lists all the different entities in Iran that are sanctioned and you can at least, you know, predict, okay, well, if a client worked for a company that is on one of these sanctioned entities, there may be a delay there. I just pulled open the list for China. And the only actual sanctioned entity in China right now is something called the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps Public Security Bureau. So whatever it is that they're looking for, it's not based on that list. Um, there was the recent federal court case, and it kind of gives an idea as to how broad they're looking, which was uh, Gung v. Canada Citizenship and Immigration 2023, FC 773. And in that case, they found someone inadmissible. He had already immigrated this person, had been a permanent resident, disclosed previous employment, lost PR status, reapplied, and now under this broader you know, lens that they're doing security through for people from China, he got declared inadmissible for having taught at something called the Luoyang Foreign Languages Institute. 
which apparently provides language instruction to individuals from the three PLA in China. So was well, that the IED decision that you, you were citing? No, this is federal court. It was set aside by Justice Mosley on the grounds that uh, the officer adopted an overzealous approach mm. in determining that someone who taught English to spies was a member of an organization that committed espionage. Mm. But right, it, right. It, 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 it would be hard to predict at application preparation stage that someone who taught at a foreign language institute that that would end up on a list of organizations that may cause problems. Um, yeah, and so it is, it's not clear at all what, what they are looking for yeah. with regards to... Um, for sure, and as I'm seeing too, like I'm getting these, applica- these requests on you know, um, home child care provider pilot applications that have been pending for two or three years on home support worker pilot applications, again, pending two or three years, please provide this government information form for people who have been working as hospital staff. And again, the idea of providing care to people in a hospital setting that that might potentially have admissibility implications. I'm just writing back and being like, look, you have this information on the schedule A form to fill in the details about how many steps between you and a minister and, you know, provide the details and the rank and all this kind of stuff as if this is a military position is like, honestly, tell us what your concerns are so that we can make a meaningful response or just please make a decision on this application because right now this just feels like a a fishing expedition. Um, You know, again, um, these aren't military positions, but it does really feel like the level of scrutiny scrutiny feels very ambitious and speculative and just extremely broad. Um, and, you know, it's leading to gross delays uh, in processing of applications. And, on, on, you know, where no real concrete concerns have been put forward as to what the what the what the officer's concern is at all. Yeah, this is actually sort of one of my frustrations with the Chinese uh, students that, you know, the Mandamus work we've been doing is that quite often it's unclear as to what the concern is. They're not mm-hmm. tied to the list. And at the same time, it's not entirely clear what is being investigated. Mm-hmm. We've had plenty of security um, concerns recently. This had to do with a Ukrainian um, jet production facility. So a country to which we're sending billions in aid, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a security concern. And you can at least understand that. And you can understand the type of investigation that's being made. Well, what was your position? Are you possibly a danger? Whereas with some of the students, they just completed a master's degree. What exactly are the tools that CBSA and CISIS have at their disposal to determine that they're possibly inadmissible? And to me, it almost seems like some of them are just being weighted out. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, we'll jump into the Chen decision, but this gentleman is still waiting. Um, we've recently gotten a production order on uh, a file where he's been waiting for 27 months. So um, it's unclear what is actually being done. And, um, you know, I, I just wish there was a bit more transparency because on the political front, uh, China and Canada were, you know, we were sort of friends, part of this globalized world you know that fukuyama kind of predicted and is now unraveling and then on the practical level we are sticking people into security with no clear allegations or even a basis for a concern like with an iranian national i can kind of see it quite clearly 
plenty of Russian cases, Ukrainian cases, um, mm -hmm. some stuff from the Middle East, but some of the um, Chinese students, I'm not entirely sure what, what it is they're assessing and what tools they have available other than, I don't know, research online and so on. I can understand the, why the Canadian government would be concerned about, well, forget like, you know, STEM espionage or anything like that. Even just the fact that there's allegations that there's undercover police stations in, um, that there's undercover police stations of the Chinese government in Canada. We, the issue is what is actually like being done at the security stage where, you know, do all Chinese nationals suffer because of that? Or what, what is the, like, it would just, what is the actual thing that they're looking for and how are people being screened? Yeah. And at the same time, we're, 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 we have this policy. I remember, I think it was Justice Ahmed, sorry, not Justice Ahmed, but uh, Minister Ahmed had a release with respect to students and how students will form a part of Canada's, uh, you know, immigration landscape and policy and how critical they are and so on. And in the Chen decision, we have a note which says you can study elsewhere, which is also kind of in some sense offensive to our sort of broader position to the world as far as immigration and attracting students is concerned. And that's another interesting play. Um, I guess we'll, we'll get into it. Yeah, why don't we jump that, to the, the Chen yeah. decision, which well, was a mandamus application that your firm did, and it was for a... Chinese prospective Chinese PhD student in yeah. Canada who was had and I, I think you said still has a security review ongoing. Yeah. So yeah. So our firm has been doing a decent amount of mandamus work. Uh, some of it has been in the Chinese student space. Mostly we're uh, dealing with files where the student is seeking to do a master's or a PhD in Canada. They're typically in their mid twenties. So Mr. Chan uh, was seeking to uh, do a PhD of uh, intellectual and computer engineering at UBC, so University of British Columbia. Um, he was, uh, this is not in the decision, but this was on the record. He was offered a significant um, stipend or grant, a uh, very significant stipend or grant. This was before the court. And he applied for a visa in December, 2021. At the time, the dynamic processing was at 13 weeks and the standard of care, uh, or not the standard of care, but the standard of service or the reasonable service standard time, whatever he calls that metric was 60 days. Uh, he passed eligibility and was stuck in security. We were retained 40 weeks into processing. So he has already missed a uh, full semester by that point. And uh, crucially, he was uh, doing the program online, but uh, he did need to start the in-person process. So basically while waiting, he started a part of the program online. That's the basic procedural sort of background. Uh, we did not handle the actual student visa application. We handled just the mandamus file. Um, we ultimately got leave. And after getting leave, uh, the court wrote to the DOJ or the minister rather, saying, can you please provide an update? Because they didn't file an updated affidavit, no updated GCMS notes. The only update that was received was that the file is still in security. No um, explanation whatsoever. And they could have, of course, uh, had an affidavit from a CBSA officer or a CSIS officer saying, hey, we're concerned with X, we're concerned with Y, et cetera, nothing like that. 
So it goes to a hearing. I'm not the one to argue it, but um, the person who did argue, Jason Thomas, in my view, is one of the best civil litigators in Toronto. Um, hundreds of JR files, uh, appellate work, trial work, etc. So very competent lawyer. And it's in front of Madam Justice Allen, and the test ultimately, or the case ultimately comes down to this concept of significant prejudice, which in my view should not be a part of a mandamus assessment, especially in the immigration context. It is incorporated from an abusive process case that was decided by the Supreme Court in 2001, I think, or 2000. And ultimately, that, that's the background. I, I can answer your questions and we can have a um, yeah, before we get this. to the the, uh, the significant prejudice test that Madam Justice Aylin adopted, she did find that the there was no reasonable explanation given for the security delay, correct? Correct. So she found that there was no explanation. She found, A, that the, there has been a delay, but there was no explanation for the delay. So she did find that, and she was somewhat frustrated with the respondent uh, for not providing any details, essentially going into court with just a blanket, uh, you know, a reliance on a blanket ongoing or a blanket reliance on ongoing security screening. Which so I've had that in mandamus yeah. applications as well. Why do you think that there aren't more specific reasons given beyond just security delay? Uh, never assume malice where... Um, Ignorance could, uh, I mean, I don't know what the polite word is. I, I think it's just disorganization. I think there are way too many files. I think that our security apparatus is probably not sufficiently staffed and funded. And I think they just don't bother. Very few of those cases will ultimately make it to the court. Um, I've often wondered that myself, because in the other case that we're going to discuss, Samide, um, again, they could have provided an explanation. Like, we have concerns with respect to X. And that probably defeats the mandamus. I mean, we can argue whether, you know, it still justifies, like it, the justification is sufficient to, you know, um, override several years of waiting. But um, I don't know. I don't have a good question. What do you, what is your thought as to why no particulars are provided? Well, I feel like in some ways, like once, once the department has said, look, this is with CSIS and, uh, and this is a reasonable delay related to a security um, clearance process that is in the national interest. I feel like that's being the kiss of death uh, to this point in mandamus litigation, because I feel that the court has given great deference to the department in terms of delays related to security clearance. But I feel that with the sort of explosion of security clearance related delays, where there is no real clarity as to why this clearance is required, um, especially where it's, if it's just that by virtue of being Chinese, <laughs> I feel like in those sorts of circumstances, I feel like the litigation is going to have to get at that more effectively. Like, I think that that's the mission that is, that, that is, is in front of litigators right now who are yeah. arguing these types of cases is to bring some type of a merit-based test. Obviously it's for the judges to, 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 to carve out that test, but I feel like the sort of blank 
this is in the national interest, there it has to be something qualitative that just the fact that somebody is from this specific country that is something that there are political concerns around safety doesn't mean that there can be this ongoing fishing expedition with no, no determinate time period that can't be the answer. And so, um, you know, I think that that's going to be the challenge for litigation in this area is that there needs to be some qualitative assessment as to what is a reasonable amount of time to conduct a security assessment. I don't have an answer as to how we are going to try and push that agenda forward, but I feel like um, there has been a lot of leniency in the past, but I think that providing information through ATIP or whatever to talk about the volume of cases that are backlogged on this basis, if it's a decision to not properly staff this file, that can't be a rationale for why it's just impossible to achieve uh, an application for study permit that is going to be successful because just by virtue of being Chinese, you're going to end up in a security clearance process that spans over a year. Well, I think it's also like part of their strategy, which the court seems to have not accepted in recent years, is to try to just say, well, it's been punted to CBSA, so it's a partner organization, so we have no control. Mm -hmm. Like I had a mandamus application where for a year there was a security review with the partner organization, and every two to three months in GCMS, there'd be a note saying, we checked the file, security review still ongoing. And during the mandamus application as part of the process, you know, we asked, can we see copies of correspondence from IRCC to the partner organization to check and inquire as to what the status of the uh, security check is? And IRCC responded that there was no correspondence and they had never communicated with the partner organization to ask what was going on. Which we argued obviously was unreasonable because, you know, all they had to do was send an email. What was interesting was during the mandamus, as soon as we objected to that, then there was the update from IRCC saying, well, we've now emailed them. And that actually seemed to prompt action um, once IRCC had emailed CBSA. I mean, it could also have been that there was a mandamus hearing coming up, which prompted movement. But the lack of... Um, the department seems to have adopted a bit of a strategy of just saying, well, it's not our problem. It's a partner organization that does these security reviews. Can the, I'm, I, I don't know if this has ever been attempted or if it's even possible, but to third party, the, the partner organization, whether it's CSIS or CBSA, that's undertaking the security clearance. I think it, but, but, I think if as long as the, the federal court is saying that, IRCC has an obligation to kind of be on top of things. Mm -hmm. um, unless the jurisprudence on that shifts, I don't see why you would add in the uh, CBSA. I mean, you have to even confirm first that they're the organization that's doing mm -hmm. the review. Yeah, I agree with Stephen on that because I, uh, you know, I I didn't see the benefit of doing that. We've strategically chosen not to do that, mm -hmm. and I'd. Um, Perhaps maybe slightly disagree with you, Diana, with respect to the justification. I think what was disappointing with the Chen decision is that our bar has been on a bit of a roll as far as getting the court to say, no, a blanket reliance mm -hmm. on just an ongoing security is not going to cut it. Yeah. Not going to cut well, it. Provide us with some explanation. Same thing as saying COVID, you know, cosmic, sure. was my uh, whatever is not going to cut it. 
And I, th- I think there's been um, a bit of a maybe shift in uh, per- the court's perspective in-, in terms of deference. And of course, with COVID, we had headlines about backlogs, delays, uh, it-, it taken a long time to get a passport, to get a visa, to get anything that was tied to a sort of bureaucratic matrix. So I think one of the things that was disappointing, just to bring it back to Chan, is that we have the introduction of this uh, sort of additional, more onerous requirement. And uh, Stephen's comment regarding the there actually um, being no uh, communication when that communication between uh, IRCC and CBC was in the notes is an interesting one, because we've seen that quite often where, you know, a DOJ lawyer will uh, say, well, we followed up, right? Well, did you really follow up? And, you know, in some day, another decision that we've argued, uh, the court ultimately said, well, okay, following up is great, but that, that doesn't absolve you of rendering the decision, mm-hmm. which I think is great for us. So I wouldn't bring CBSA or CSIS into this unless there's a specific strategic, reason. I guess, uh, reason, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so the Chen decision one interpretation of it anyways there's a few interpretations and no decisions i mean it's very recent no decisions have cited it yet one interpretation of the chen decision is that no matter how unreasonable the delay is or lack of justification it doesn't matter if there's no significant prejudice to the applicant but I, I, I have a slightly, I mean, I see what you're saying, but ultimately there is, I think, in most cases, a tie between the delay and the prejudice, right? If, uh, you know, if, if you're waiting, if you're completing your program for, you know, four years and then you're being, you're forced, you, let's say it's a student visa application, you're doing the program remotely for four years. The evidence before the court is that he has to start and the in-person part of it, which means that if a mandamus isn't rendered and he continues, um, he's going to have to abandon and start a new program, which, again, sort of creates this correlation between the delay and the, the type of prejudice that we're talking about. In my view, again, uh, you know, significant prejudice shouldn't be a part of the mandamus test. We have the balance of convenience that incorporates prejudice. Mm-hmm. Mandamus is, is a materially different order from staying of staying proceedings. It's kind of like saying, you know, you need a license for a special license for like an AK-47, and we're going to take the same special requirements for a headgun. Not not a gun enthusiast, but for some reason that example came to mind. And you know the 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 test uh, should I think reflect the nature of the remedy being sought. They're, they're both equitable remedies, stay of proceedings and, and the mandamus, but one potentially prevents. And in, in the Briscoe decision, there was essentially a permanent stay of hearings before a human rights tribunal with respect to allegations of sexual abuse, I guess, for lack of a better word. It's very serious. Mandamus, at best, gets you a decision, possibly a rejection within 60 days, 90 days, and so on. Why are we now going to incorporate this more significant test? And uh, I guess I'm bringing it back, I guess I'm frustrated with the decision that you bring it back to this point. But yeah, that's that's sort of... Uh, those are my thoughts on that. But you were saying that you, you could see it being sort of... Uh, well, because I think Justice Ailen, Madam Justice Aylan found that the delay was unreasonable, but ultimately dismissed the application on the basis of no significant prejudice. Yeah, and she actually did say, as you've noted, Lev, that a blanket assertion that his security checks are pending without more uh, is, not a, is not enough. 
Yeah. So, so there are a couple of things with respect to this. A, yeah. our client was not cross-examined on his affidavit. The evidence that he gives is prima facie plausible. Like he's been living on Vancouver time while, while actually physically being in China. So a nine-hour difference for 18 months. Just do that thought experiment, right? Not exactly sort of healthy. He, there, there is an in-person part to the program. So he needs to eventually start attending that. He's missing out on all the sort of cultural, you know, all, all the sort of social aspects of studying. He is uh, dealing with internet issues. He says that he has developed anxiety and so on. No, he doesn't have a doctor's note to say that he's anxious and his psychological uh, sort of um, condition is being affected. And uh, Madam Justice Aylan essentially dismisses or diminishes the evidence because I think even if you apply a significant prejudice test, I think there's an arguable case here, even, even with the, the test that I think is misplaced. And I don't think the evidence was necessarily considered in the most, um, I would say, you know, in the, in the most open matter. And, and in my view, they're, you know, sort of reading between the lines. It could be that the court is, is seeing that DOJ and IRCC are essentially defenseless. They, they don't produce affidavits that don't explain the delay. So maybe the court's trying to sort of um, protect itself and protect uh, our judicial system from the floodgates sort of being open. Because this was a TR decision, right? Temporary residence decision with an 18 month delay. Um, that's something that came to mind. Um, not sure what, you, what your take is on, on sort of that potential angle. I'm just I'm I'm looking over the the rationale provided um, in the decision as we're discussing, and I, I'm kind of wondering, you know, this this significant prejudice component. Do you believe that um, Madam Justice Allen was considering this to be commensurate with the balance of convenience? Do you think that that's um, no, no, no? I don't think so. I think she essentially says there's the Apotex test. Yeah. And then we're going to add this extra sort of barrier that you have to jump through. And it's, very, if, if, it's very frustrating because, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that there was no question certified, but you would never have thought to put forward this question for certification because you would have had no... Um, Hindsight's always 2020. <laughs> well, but again, how would you have known to put forward a question well, for I mean, certification without knowing that a new element of a test was going to be proposed? We, we knew the DOJ was going to argue this point, and I, I think the submissions of the hearing was that, look, there's a balance of jurisprudence that does not use this extra step, mm. and that this step is really being incorporated from... Um, you know, proceedings with respect to actual relief that is far more sort of mm -hmm. serious and, and requires potentially a higher standard. I think that, so we, we have um, production orders on either two or three similar, or somewhat similar cases, I guess. And if they go to court, uh, you know, we may seek to certify a question. Mm. As so it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a bit of a, it well, can be yeah, a catch twenty two. <laughs> I'd be because interested. Because the federal in your court of appeals says, "All right, Mr. Bromish, thank you so much for certifying this question. We'll now definitively answer once and for mm -hmm. all. We'll restrict, um, you know, the mm -hmm. use of this remedy to only those who could uh, meet the significant prejudice uh, component." Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see. It could be a decision that is not picked up because there were um, 
was the decision received, um, issued after Chen. I don't think it considered Chen. We currently have uh, a decision pending on another mandamus file. Um, I don't think it's going to reference Chen. But so far, most of the case law that is kind of COVID-related does not incorporate significant prejudice. Mm-hmm. In Goli, uh, the respondent did attempt to bring this component in, and uh, Justice Favell uh, did not uh, engage with that part. Mm-hmm. So it could be that this decision is just sort of sidetracked. We'll, yeah. we'll see. Uh, yeah, I've spoken tricky. about this with uh, Will Tao and just the idea of sort of strategic litigation, and we'll see mm-hmm. if we can... Uh, Mm-hmm. We can sort of have a, an approach as a bar to this particular issue. Yeah, there's yeah. been one mandamus since. It was in the permanent residence context um, where the judge there, a decision called Gadar, G-H-A-D-D-A-R, a self-repped person. And the court there just uh, said that uh, it would, you know, they would, the mandamus would clearly be of some practical value or effect which I think has been the test that you more often see. What's sort of interesting about Chen is that I think it's the first, at least recent mandamus case involving a temporary residence application that was published. So Mm -hmm. whether there is going to be now a separate test um, as a result of Chen, I think remains to be seen. Certainly the Department of Justice will cite it. uh, I'll try to argue for this test. Yeah. We've gotten a bunch of RMOAs since Chen, and I don't know if I'm giving up giving up some information to the Department of Justice here, but so far we've not seen a single RMOA that cites Chen. Maybe yeah, I mean, I don't know how much time it takes for a decision yeah, to, to influence its way into the you know the precedents their templates and, so and precedents. Yeah. Uh, I don't know perhaps, why they wouldn't. Perhaps I mean, we should living, just explain yeah, though that, like, I mean, when. Um, when a decision, like in terms of this whole question, because we haven't really talked in the show about um, putting forward a question for certification, have we, Steve? No. So um, maybe we should just sort of um, sort of speak to that that question a little bit, and and then sort of talk a little bit about what sort of some of the considerations are by council and whether or not to put forward a question for certification. Um, and then, um, you know, just maybe talk a little bit about that. Um, but also maybe just sort of think a little bit about, um, about this notion of, of what would it entail to show significant prejudice? Um, and, you know, I don't know if the two of you think that that would be like, um, um, good topics for conversation just in terms of people in terms like that might be bringing mandamus cases on their own and just some things that people might consider in you know making their own mandamus applications a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Well, I think there has to be some degree of strategy here. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm speaking to a fellow lawyer with far more experience than me. And I was I told him, frankly, that I'm somewhat concerned about getting this to the federal court of appeal because at this stage most of the jurisprudence is in our favor if you will sure you you know how it's going to play out necessarily yeah uh i think the idea of significant prejudice is problematic when the judge tells you you can always study elsewhere well yeah it it basically it basically tells you that potentially on a tr or student visa application you're just not entitled to a mandamus like prima facie yeah. Right? You can always study elsewhere. You can always leave elsewhere. You can always work elsewhere to some degree, right? So it's an interesting question that you pose. It's really, it's also like, I can't remember what the decision is. Steve is much better at remembering the actual source of the jurisprudence. But remember there was that, that anyways, I, I won't remember the specific citation, but it was something about work permit applications. And like, you know, you say that, um, that bringing this person is, um, oh, I'm not going to remember the source, but it was like, isn't this exactly the point of the temporary foreign worker program? It was one of those kinds of comments with respect. Oh, to is it in terms when they say like that it's unreasonable to refuse someone on the basis that they'll make more money in Canada than they would yes. back home? It was yeah. exactly like that. Yeah. And it's sort of this, like, if you're saying, well, you could study from abroad remotely, but like, what is the whole point of the study permit program? Why are we setting up things like the Canadian experience class and the post-graduation work permit? The whole thing is we paved a pathway for study permit holders to come get their studies here, like the PNP programs are granting, you know, they're making entire pathways based on people who've graduated from Canadian institutions. Like we're obviously recognizing the value of Canadian education. We're creating opportunities for people to gain permanent residency. And yet they're saying, but you could study abroad. So like there's no, um, there's a, there's something that's at cross purposes here. The policy doesn't make sense intuitively if you're saying, well, you could do the study from abroad. Like if this um, rationale is going to be endorsed that there's no significant prejudice, but you're basically cutting off the opportunity to get a post-graduation work permit and then to pave the way for permanent residency. So if that's not significant prejudice, I don't know what is. Um, but well, at the same time, sorry, go ahead. In this particular case, I do have to know the applicant was was just the facts were that he just wanted to study here. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it, it was a bit unique. He was doing it remotely. He just wanted to study here. Um, that was that was the position before the court. However, I I think he was quite prejudiced by the delay um, mm-hmm. and potentially. If, I mean, if he can't continue the program, he potentially loses three years of his life, maybe. As far as studying is concerned. So, um, yeah, I I think it is 
it is, we'll see how jurisprudence ultimately evolves mm-hmm. in this area. What is your take? Because uh, it sounds like you file a fair number of mandamus applications, and we've spoken with a few lawyers. What is your take regarding when it is appropriate to file? Is it, and I mean, I've heard everything now from like, you know, it should be two to three times the normal processing standard. Some people seem to be taking the very aggressive approach that uh, even if processing the stated processing time on the IRCC website has not been passed, that if eligibility is saying it hasn't started after even a couple weeks or months that they are considering mandamus. Um, what is your general like uh, approach on what yeah, that so threshold is? My, my thinking on this is uh, like it's, it's nuanced. Uh, I, it, there's no clear cut sort of answer to your question. It, uh, you know, when to follow mandamus may depend on what you think the outcome is going to be. For example, somewhat paradoxically, I tell clients, if you're stuck in security, file may go to leave. So you want the greatest delay uh, possible. It may be actually better for you to wait a little bit more to make sure that we do get leave. And then ultimately the court's going to hear your decision. Uh, again, perhaps somewhat paradoxically, but that that's one approach. On uh, temporary visas, we are currently saying around 10 months to a year uh, with respect to, for example, study permits. If there is a real emergency, real prejudice, we may take a file um, that has been pending for less. One of my mandamuses early on with respect to a Russian national who was in a really tough spot, they were essentially political refugees, CEC applicants, sorry, not CEC, excuse me, FSW applicants, I think they were. And they only waited for like 10 months or something like that. I said, okay, I'll make an exception because I, I see that the circumstances are so compelling, like the legal test may not be there. Our strategy was to basically file, communicate this to the DOJ, uh, who I have to commend on the whole. I mean, the DOJ, I think, at least in my experience on the whole, has has shown a great deal of humanity, a great deal of commitment to sort of maintaining the values that Canada stands for and then communicating and going above and beyond and providing information when it's not their job. Ultimately, this gentleman got a decision within three or four months within filing a mandamus. I think the mandamus played a material role in it. Our general approach is as follows. On certain applications, we take the reasonable service standard time multiplied by three, so for example, on uh, express entry applications, it's generally after 18 months, make make an exception, may wait uh, longer. Citizenship, generally speaking, depending on the complexity of the file. Oh, another big part of it is, have you contributed to the delay? I had a Russian client recently who uh, switched wives midway for the application mm-hmm. and put uh, put the application on hold for nine mm-hmm. months. So he came, came to me and I said, mm, not going to take it yet because and so on. When he got to about 40 months, nine of which are, you know, sort of on account of him, we filed them in Damas. We'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, I think we take sort of a contextual approach, mm-hmm. generally speaking. But uh, we do generally utilize the standard service times that they post mm-hmm. as opposed to the ever-changing dynamic processing times, which 
you know, can like for FS for those skilled trade workers, I don't know what it is, 70 months and it was 33. Yeah. And we use that in our factum to show like, hey, you cannot go by this. It's prima facie sort of nonsense. So have you also heard of um, individuals and lawyers filing, you know, even if the processing standard is a year, they'll file after two months because why not? I've not heard that, but uh, I've also not corresponded on this issue a great deal. I've spoken to my Damus applications with you. I've spoken um, about them with um, Will recently, a few other lawyers, but broadly, no, I've not heard of that. I, I mean, one thing that we have to keep in mind, and why are a lot of these applications, why are they being filed? It's not just the delay. It's the complete lack of transparency. So a person cannot plan their life. They may have an emergency. In extreme cases, I've used them in Damus to get the minister's ear. I got one client. I don't think this is. Uh, I, I think he he wrote at least a thousand letters, at least a thousand letters. An emergency situation. You can question his strategy and so on. Uh, to the minister of Sitchiv Immigration, to the prime minister's office, to CBSA, to everybody. Within, I think, a month and a half of filing a mandamus, citizenship file, been pending, I think, at that point for like 12 or 13 months, so it just passed the processing time. You know, the DOJ was fantastic, forwarded to... to... No, I think... Transparency, we've utilized... I've, I guess I've disappeared. No, you're back. Uh, so sometimes we've utilized it as, as an avenue to get someone's attention. Uh, I'm not saying that that's the right approach in every case. I've not heard of lawyers filing it after two or three months. Um, I've, on one occasion, I mean, or I guess on some occasions, we've filed applications where I told the client, look, this may not be successful. He's like, I'm just sick and tired of waiting. I don't care about the money. Uh, let's you know. Let's file. Let's let's do something. If, if there's some extraordinary circumstances, so we've done that. But but with us, it's it's contextual, right? Uh, sometimes it makes sense to wait longer. Sometimes you know you may want to proceed right away. Yeah, I think that um, what I'm hearing from you, and this is certainly what I have experienced as well, speaking to other. Um, more senior litigators is that in a way we are all conducting our own kind of prejudice assessment in order to make sure that we are um, ensuring that um, applications for mandamus that are putting forward are meritorious that meet the test um, for mandamus and that are likely to um, receive a positive decision on a, on the leave decision. Um, and that, you know, that we are getting um, responsive treatment by the Department of Justice. And as you said, that's that's the experience we're having here as well in terms of, um, you know, you know, very conciliatory approach with the Department of Justice on meritorious cases like that and, you know, positive decisions and a lot of them being resolved before we even get to that stage. Um, and so, um, so, so yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's unfortunate to see a decision like this where um, something has been instituted as being an additional step in the process where um, more like a, an additional element of the test has appears to have been added where the criteria is really unclear and uh but i but i i'm with you in feeling like the idea of having this um 
more firmly established in the in the jurisprudence, especially by the Federal Court of Appeal, uh, leaves me feeling very unsettled. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I mean, we'll we'll see how the the next couple of hearings go. We're mm-hmm. going to address if the DOJ argues this. We're certainly going to address it in a great deal and just delineate the evolution of the law with respect to significant prejudice, the origin of the concept, and mm-hmm. you know why it's ultimately not a part of the apotex test and why it should not be considered and then in the alternative may arguments make arguments that you know that the threshold is made and possibly propose a question for certification what mm-hmm. uh, so what do you think is going on maybe it ties into what we were talking about with the unexplained security delays out of china but like prior to covid I barely filed mandamus applications and the stats out of the federal court show that it was very rarely used. I think I filed one in my first five years of practice. Yeah. And what has changed? Like are processing times actually worse? Is it a greater lack of transparency leading to frustration? Is it the knowledge that mandamus worked in a few cases at the start of COVID so more and more people started doing it. What what has changed either at the practitioner side or IRCC that is leading to more mandamus applications, do you think? Well, in my view, there's been a bit of a shift in, in the framework. So COVID, in my view, has revealed how archaic, arcane, uh, backward, or actual, like the, the back end of our immigration system is. And it has created a lot of frustration, like a groundswell of frustration in terms of applicants feeling like Canada doesn't really care, like they're just a number, um, that the fact that they may have sold their home or taken certain actions in reliance on some sort of operational functionality, uh, that is, that's not playing any sort of role. There's been a lot of media coverage, of course, with respect to that and the impact of individuals. Um, in terms of our own practice, we've done a couple initially, and like you, I think I've I've used the mandamus remedy maybe a few times, typically in complex files with seeking other relief, declaratory relief, et cetera, sort of as a strategy. Um, with our firm, we were successful in a few files, the word spread for groups and so on, we started picking up more on them. And I think there's been an education uh, as far as, um, Applicants are concerned where a mandamus now is sort of a household word. Why don't you file a mandamus? What about yeah. a mandamus? And so on. And I think at the t- same time that the federal court, the judges, I think, have also been sort of reading the news, looking at the fact that it may take you, I don't know, six months to get a passport. Nothing works. Well, why am I going to be differential to this framework that doesn't seem to be functioning very well? Like We mm-hmm. want to hold them accountable. And I think there's been, I guess, a change um, in approach by the court or somewhat of a change at the same time the remedy like why should it why should it be exceptional uh, to the degree of just using it after seven years 10 years 12 years mm-hmm. uh i think this the, the highest uh waiting period i think was something like 22 years for ministerial relief like why should it only be reserved to such cases why is someone suffering for four years insufficient right i think there's maybe been a bit of an adjustment in my view What do you think? Yeah. I'll give my, I can give my theory. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, uh, I agree with everything that Levis said. My, my other, the only thing I want to add is that 
when the sort of wave of litigation first began, um, the sorry, the wave of mandamus litigation, I think that overwhelm began with the private bar. It then began to overwhelm the Department of Justice. And I think we're now in the era where it's overwhelming the courts. And so I think it has begun, at least in the Western region, to, to start impacting the courts on processes where they have had to issue new practice directives to deal with their volumes, um, you know, where um, the delay just even in terms of getting a decision on a regular motion that started to slow down significantly in our region. And so I think perhaps um, the more stringent approach to mandamus, I'm, this is my concern at, at, in any event. My concern is that it, it might come full circle where um, while there was a more permissive attitude towards mandamus when they first started seeing it that like look um you know you're right it doesn't need to be seven years but now that there's perhaps going to be more of a pushback that like ah you know in this situation um we want to see that there's more prejudice that would be my concern and i'm perhaps just being a, a bit of a negative nazi by saying this i just hope that they're not going to start saying um that, that we're going to expect a higher standard to be met in order for mandamus case to go forward. So that would just be my worry from seeing this decision in Chen. I'm hopeful that we will go back to uh, what we were seeing prior to that, because um, to me, um, you know, you shouldn't have to reach a two, three, five, seven year standard in order to be able to establish that the system is just simply not working as it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. My own theory is that it's also um, IRCC seeming to abandon having a processing queue or first come, first serve, which is ironic because in Chen they speak to the processing queue. But it's, I don't know if you attended the uh, the processing time mandamus seminar at the CBA conference where IRCC spoke about how there's pool uh, if you look at it as a swimming pool with different lanes the straightforward applications have a lot of lifeguards making sure everything goes smooth they're able to hit targets but if something's complicated it goes into another lane and it seems like once a file is not straightforward for whatever reason there's a complete black hole as to what's going on on it and i think that that is a actual Maybe I'm just misremembering. Maybe it's always been like that. But I feel like that's been a bit of a change, that files that are complex or at least not readily approvable to hit targets go into a black hole and there doesn't seem to be an effective way to get attention on them other than, say, mandamus. Well, do you guys remember, though, when GCMS was first in introduced and, you know, I remember at that point being reassured that this whole um, idea of visa office processing times would be that there would be more equity in terms of that, because, you know, that they could redistribute work so that there would be more parity between visa office processing at one place or the other. Um, and so, you know, that you you wouldn't have a situation where it was going to take 
a year to process an application from one visa center and two weeks from a different visa center. But again, that never really materialized. Yeah. And um, and the equity issues related to that have never been addressed. But, um, you know, in the mandamus context, it, it really is, is a concern that just because of your country of citizenship or your country of residence, that there should be such a disproportionate impact on processing time, not because of the merits of the application, but strictly because of the citizenship of the person or because of even though all of them are filed online it's not because of the physical locale and even though the work can be redistributed um, through the GCMS system you know uh, why should that be the case and local knowledge even though that is what it is that you know um, anyways I, I, I it just sort of brings all this in mind too in terms of the different lanes. Well I don't know about the different lanes because I mean obviously we, we have some statistics but not like thousands of files but we've seen plenty of files where there was nothing that suggested that the file should be delayed mm -hmm. in fact we have a sure. decent amount of files where gcms says decision uh either ready to finalize or recommended just, for approval or it just issued a positive decision so yeah. basically someone just forgot to print it so i i don't know and many of our files are from ghana from Accra, ghana Mm -hmm. uh, New Delhi, Akragana, some visa offices also just don't seem to have the same level of like operational functionality. We just have a CTR, we're dealing with motions regarding CTR productions and so on. Like 30 uh, requests are missing from the CTR. I don't know if they were ever logged in, for example, by, by that office. And I don't know, I'm not sure I buy the whole, you know, you know, we have one lane for those who are... Um, where uh, you know where the file straightforward, not not been my experience. And just one more thing about Chan, um, there was no evidence before the court with respect to queue jumping. So it's not as if there was an mm -hmm. affidavit from the department which said, "All right, so this file is here, and if you force us to render a decision, he mm -hmm. will jump over the next fifty-five applicants." In sure. part because he's been waiting for eighteen months. Like how many applicants are there stuck on TR yeah. in eighteen months? But there's been no evidence, that, no submissions, no evidence, nothing regarding queue jumping. Hmm. So I don't know That's where the queue jumping part came out of. Um Yeah. Although especially you when you can see that they're beyond <laughs> well, when, sorry. Uh, just I mean I find that really astonishing, especially when the whole basis of it is that they've already gone beyond the published processing standard, which is like you know, I, yeah, I think the DOJ may have made some oral submissions regarding like queue jumping. I think the submission may have been that basically the reasonable service standard time just doesn't apply. So, and and maybe the maybe Madam Justice thought that eighteen months is roughly what it takes. I mean, like, I don't know. Uh, can comment on that, but I don't know where how one can jump or or be queue jumping when there's no evidence of who else is in the queue. Wow. Yeah, it's hard to without because there's no also there's very little transparency around what actually goes into a security assessment. Mm -hmm. Like given how broad an admissibility for membership in an organization that, you know, may have committed espionage may be, like, is it Googling every company that someone worked at to see what ties they may have to an organization? Like it actually, you know, in theory could be a very time consuming process. I yeah. say in theory because it's not actually clear what a uh, have no security idea. review uh, entails. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows if they're looking for every patient that uh, those caregivers have cared for in their um, time at the public hospitals where they were uh, an employee. Like it's really, it's, 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 um, it's very hard to speculate as to what that investigation entails, because as you said, there's just, there's nothing on the record to show what that investigation entails. Um, I don't know if this is of interest to you, uh, but one way I was thinking about this decision is that we, you know, and um, I know, I, I assume you guys are familiar with Francis's Fukuyama, the end of time, basically, the I forgot what the paper was called. It's a 1990 paper, which basically says if you get the economy right, then the politics and kind of liberalism will ensue. And this was... I think to a degree, a doctrine that the West has adopted with respect to sort of this broad geopolitical sort of uh, directive, neoliberalism. If they get the, the, the market right, if the free market is there, then everything else will fall into place to a degree. I mean, very simplified sort of uh, position with respect to his thesis. But I think in part, this is sort of deglobalization in play as well. I don't know if it's an interest uh, as far as the podcast goes, but I'm not sure we're, we're dealing with a similar decision in 2018 or 17 or similar security screenings and so on. Now, all of a sudden, we clearly have sort of national profiling. We're clearly safeguarding some something with respect to our universities who may have to now put additional sort of security requirements. So it's also interesting with respect to China, our relationship, I guess, is at least outwardly didn't necessarily change, but I think policy-wise has changed, friendshoring, et cetera, et cetera, uh, or maybe it has changed outwardly as well. But in the background, we are now screening, 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 not exactly sure for what, but it's sort of an interesting, I guess, tie between broader global trends and uh, you know ultimately what en ends up before the court. Um, that's something that sort of came to mind uh, through, through this practice and through the decision. Yeah, it's it will be interesting. I mean, I think there are geopolitical concerns that are motivating it. And also, I mean, it's just like if you look in media reports about um, partner countries possibly being frustrated with the way Canada approaches security and certain tech companies from China. Um, and then this is all also coming on the tail of the whole election interference allegations um, that the how that how and if that is translating into processing and security screening at Canadian visa offices is sort of the big question mark. I don't see why it wouldn't. It's just not clear how it is. And then also what is gain? Like, you know, I guess, you know, in a way it's like, okay, the American approach as uh, Lev noted was the, you know, Trump executive order, which will officially declare this is what we're doing. Whereas the Canadian approach seems to be, well, we'll just bureaucratically be silent and just slow. Mm -hmm. But, you know, is everything's slow, it seems these days. Yeah. But effectively, um, but effectively making, making decision by indecision or, um, you know, and, and, and ultimately it, it means that unless somebody is going to, um, to, to, 
to take the initiative, to challenge a decision, to challenge a refusal, it ends up impacting many, many, many people um, who just aren't prepared to to go this step of of, of judicial review, and uh, it becomes a big access to justice kind of initiative. And there's well. a discrete, like it's you know, like the deferring admission to a school, which sometimes has like fees associated with mm-hmm. it for months on end just because you happen to be a Chinese person mm-hmm. um, with a STEM background is, it's, I mean, I don't know, for lack of stronger word, I'll just say problematic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I take your point, Lev, that the applicant in Chen was not seeking long-term pathway. But again, I, um, I, I feel like there's something fundamentally um, sort of dishonest about the entire policy around making these programs open to applicants if, in fact, the pathway is kind of blocked. Um, so, um, or you know, it, it's sort of the way that uh, Canada went about recruiting all sorts of students to programs in Canada without being truly clear about what the options were going to be down the road. I just feel like um, the lack of clarity, the lack of transparency and accountability, I think, is what's troubling. It is. And maybe this is where we talk about the new minister, because my my sort of two cents were that I mean, okay, we have a new minister. We seem to have a new minister every 16 to 20 months. Mm. I've never held public office. I'd imagine it takes maybe a year to really sort of get a grasp on things. Although, you know, it's it's a very complex position. It's political, it's technocratic, it's economic, it seeks to reunify families, refugees are involved. It's it's a complex. And we, we have this revolving door and does it really matter that much who the new minister is if the bureaucratic sort of technocratic ma- matrix is what controls it, right? Mm-hmm. You can put sort of like a head on it. It's like, um, and, and that is, in, I think, sharp contrast to the old days where there was a personality, there was a culture, there was an agenda, mm-hmm. right? Where now we have this sort of governance by 18-page, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is, 18-page checklist for various yeah. LMIAs and so on. And, are earpo objectives still in play? Is it all ministerial objectives yeah, and policies? Cetera, right. It's like, oh my goodness, the the as you said, this like mosaic patchwork of band aid policies. Um, it really does make it uh, almost impossible for under for somebody to have like a a bird's eye view of what the what the programs and policies currently are. Yeah. I think it does. The last minister, I'd say, seemed to hit the ground really running. Um, I think you can divide them into like strong ministers who kind of impose their vision on the department and weaker ministers who kind of let the department dictate things. The last minister, you could tell, was more of the stronger minister in part because it seemed like IRCC officials, at least some, were leaking things to the media, like the uh, that public policy to bulk waive um, the requirement that someone will leave by the end of period authorized for their stay for old TRV applications was leaked by senior people at the department to the globe, in theory, to presumably to try to stop it. And we'll see. I mean, the new minister has been in cabinet for 
four or five years. But how long does he need to hold the position to, to make some sort of a change? I mean, I like the, the last minister sort of on a, I guess, an emotional level. Um, is he being demoted? Is he being promoted? Why is he, like, why the change? Has that been explained? Um, yeah, well, what I've read for what it's worth is that he was moved to housing because he's a great communicator. Um, and that's sort of consistent with my impression of him was that he was really good at the talk. Um, but when it comes to the, like, a strong visionary, um, that would not have been my take um, because I feel like there was all sorts of like, oh, there's a problem here, let's do this. Oh, problem here, let's do that. But I don't know that there was like a unifying uh, approach, a strategic plan for what immigration was. And I feel like that's where it all fell down. I don't think we've had a unifying vision for the immigration department in his tenure. And so... Um, that would be my critique, um, if I can offer one, not that, um, anyways, um, I'll leave that at that. I think that um, for his own political future, housing is a huge promotion. I think that he was, you know, he presided over a record number of people moving to Canada through various programs. And I think he was starting, some of his critics were starting to link him to a rental and housing crisis and if he can you know yeah. make any progress on that housing file right. which is difficult then i think that um i mean i had tweeted i think he's going to be a future prime minister how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.